sit in the front row before service started, and uh, Pastor Jamie were Jamie and I were just chatting and had a moment of prayer, and then he got up, excused himself, and said, "I need to go over there and play some drums." I said, "That proves, Jamie, that you guys aren't Baptists." <laughs> But you know what? I'm standing up here looking out, and I see so many people sitting in the back, I'm starting to have my doubts. <laughs> this is what people do in my church. They all crowd in the back. Pastor Jamie is lonely up here. How come y'all ain't sitting up here with him? <laughs> but it is, it is good to be here. Thank you for having me. It's a privilege and an honor to meet and worship with the people of God, no matter where we are gathered, whether it be in El Sobrani, where I normally worship, or here in Castro Valley. And I want to thank Pastor Jamie for opening up the pulpit to me, because that's not always a safe thing to do, because you never know who's going to show up up here and what they're going to say. And so, Pastor Jamie, thank you for the trust that you have in me and for allowing me to stand behind the sacred desk, and to open up the Word of God that we might hear from Christ today, study His Word, and put into practice what He has to say. And so before we jump into the Word, let's, let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, today is the day that you've made. We rejoice because we know that it's not by accident that we're here. You are the one that gives us the breath of life. You are the one that raised us from our beds this morning. You are the one that animates us and speaks to us and sustains us day by day. We know from the scripture that if you were to take back your spirit, men would return to the dust, and that certainly includes us. So thank you, Father, for giving us the gift of your spirit We thank you for the strength that we have in Christ, and we're grateful, Father, for the gift of your word by which we can learn about you, by which we can be instructed in the truth, by which we can have our minds renewed, by which we can be filled with your spirit. And so, Father, we are grateful for the scripture because it is your revealed word about yourself about what is right and true and beautiful. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. We know that we're not smart enough to discern it on our own. The truth is spiritually appraised, and it's only by your Spirit that we gain understanding. And so, Father, keep us from being distracted. Keep us from thinking about other things. Help us to focus our hearts and our attention on what you have to say to us this morning because we trust that you have a message for each and every one of us. And so, Father, we give you our undivided attention. Speak that we might hear. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, just so that we're not complete strangers, let me tell you just a little bit about me. Uh, Currently... I'm serving at Focal Point Bible Church with Pastor Charlie, and I understand that he has been here uh, in the past. Apparently, three or four months ago, Pastor Charlie came and spoke. But that's, that's not where I started serving. In fact, uh, it was over 35 years ago that the Lord first saved me from my sins. 
It wasn't until he convicted me of what I was doing that was wrong that he got my attention and saved me. Because prior to that, when I was a young boy in eighth grade, I went to church with my mother one Sunday, and the pastor got up and spoke and gave your typical altar call and said, if anybody wants to go to heaven, come forward. I'm looking around and wondering, how come everybody's not going forward, right? Who doesn't want to go to heaven? And so I went forward and responded to the call. Pastor said, today you are a citizen of heaven. Me and there was one other guy there. I don't know who he was or what his story was, but just two people went up that day. I was one of them. And then my mother comes out of the crowd and and puts her arm around me. She's weeping and uh, congratulates me, hugs me. After service is over, we're walking out to the, to the parking lot, and she says, don't you feel different? And I didn't have the heart to say, not really, because I didn't, honestly. I didn't feel any different whatsoever, and that manifested itself in how I lived for the next five years or more. From the time I was in eighth grade, what are you in eighth grade, 14 So five years, it wasn't until five years later that the Lord finally convicted me. For the first time, I felt dirty, I felt ashamed, and I felt like an outcast over the things that I was doing. I was 5,000 miles away from home as a college freshman, and the Lord finally got a hold of me and gave me the gift of repentance and conviction of my sin. And it was what the Apostle Paul says, that godly sorrow leads to repentance unto salvation, and there is no regret. I never experienced godly sorrow unto repentance until that day. And so that was over 35 years ago, and then 12 years after that, the Lord called me into ministry. I was working in high tech at the time, and had an opportunity to go to seminary after the company that I was working for eliminated my position. And so the Lord closed the door on tech and opened the door to seminary, and I started going part-time at night and then started going full-time. And then a few years later, graduated, and the Lord led me to a church in Walnut Creek. And so I served at Ignacio Valley Baptist Church in the early 2000s as a recent seminary graduate, and as someone was trying to get their feet up under themselves, trying to learn how to do ministry. And while I was there, there was an older pastor that had immigrated from South Korea, was looking for a place to plant a church and have worship services for Korean-speaking Americans. And so he came to the church where I was serving, and we agreed to rent him some space, just like Redwood Chapel is renting y'all space. He showed up with his three young daughters, his wife, and his elderly mother. Could barely speak English, didn't know how to drive, and moved into an unfurnished apartment. Me and a, a few of our church members went over to visit him. And were shocked to find out somebody donated him an air mattress, because he didn't have any furniture. Donated him an air mattress, and he had his sheets, his blankets, and his pillow on an air mattress with no air in it. It it was completely flat, and and he was sleeping on a a flat air mattress. I said, 
He really is from another country. And so we, we helped him get established. Before long, he started meeting and started having afternoon worship services just like is taking place right here. Well, a couple of years later, maybe three, his mother, who was already elderly, passed away. And so Pastor Paul asked me if I would help him conduct his mom's service. He wanted me to speak in English while he translated in Korean. And so I agreed to do that. And we had a worship service, which, you know, funeral service, but it was, it was a worship service because his mom was a woman of God. And so conducted the service. After everything was over and only a few people were left, we're walking out and he stops me. And he asked me a question that just blindsided me. He said, where is my mom? And I was just kind of, where is your mom? What do you mean, where is your mom? I'm thinking to myself, I'm kind of blind, so I didn't know what to say. So I asked him a question to buy myself some time. I said, uh, Pastor Paul, did your mom love Jesus? He said, yeah. I said, well, then she is with him in heaven. And he said, well, how do you know? And I said, well... Because that's what the scripture clearly teaches. To be absent from the body is to be absolutely. And that's what I said to him. To absent from the body is present with the Lord. And he kind of stepped back and looked at me and nodded his head, shook my hand and gave me a big old hug. And it was then that I realized that even somebody who is deep in the faith, who is serving the Lord, gets blindsided when life gets tough. And that encounter puzzled me for a long time because Pastor Paul was a man of faith. His mother was a woman of faith. He left his country, could barely speak English, came over here to plant a church. But then when his mom passed away, it kind of knocked him on his heels. And, and I didn't get that at first until years later. The light bulb finally went on, and then it, it became evident because I started seeing it in other people, I started experiencing it myself, that when life gets tough, even the people of God get troubled, disoriented, and confused. I mean, I, I, I can hear the, the amens out there. I mean, it's happened to you too, right? When life gets tough. We get troubled, disoriented, and confused. And it doesn't matter how long we've been Christians. It doesn't matter how long we've been serving. It doesn't matter pastor, deacon, choir member, matriarch, patriarch. It, it doesn't matter because the stressors of life have, have a way of knocking us back on our heels. And fear and doubt creep into our minds and we start to think thoughts and act in ways that are out of character, even for people of God. That happened to Pastor Paul. That has happened to me, and it's happened to some of you, as you can bear witness. And it's happened to the people of God all throughout the Bible. Even the giants of the faith get distraught and unsettled when their world gets turned upside down. And if you stop and think about it for a minute, we sang about one of them. Elijah, you remember Elijah, the great prophet 
who is the, the symbol of all the Old Testament prophets. You remember the encounter that he had on Mount Carmel with the 400 false prophets. Called down fire from heaven. After that, killed all those 400 false prophets. But then Jezebel threatens his life. And what does he do? He takes off running and says, Lord, I'm the only one that's left. And, and take me now. Elijah got distraught and bewildered and discouraged. How about Job? God said that there was nobody on earth like Job the right, most righteous man of his day. But when he lost everything that he had, where do we find Job? Sitting in sackcloth and ashes, distraught, perplexed, not knowing what to do. And then there's John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, the voice crying in the wilderness. We're going to look at him today. He even had his world rocked during his time and the circumstances that he was under. And so we're going to look at John the Baptist this morning together. So I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. And I don't know if that's going to be on the screen, but it doesn't have to be. You guys all have your Bibles, right? Either in paper form or in electronic form. If you're younger than 50, you probably have some sort of iPad or telephone or something like that. So Luke chapter 7. We're going to read from verses 11 through 23. Luke chapter 7, 11 through 23. The title of this message is Holding on to Jesus with Unmet Expectations. Holding on to Jesus with Unmet Expectations. Actually, before I read the passage, I want to set the stage a little bit. The passage, verse 11, says soon afterward, Jesus and his disciples were going someplace. So they were on their way someplace from what had happened the day prior. I'm not going to read verses 1 through 10, but you probably know the story. There was a Roman centurion who had a servant who was sick. And he had sent some of his friends, some, some people that he respected, that he thought Jesus would respect, to ask Jesus to come and heal his servant. Jesus agreed to do that. And he was on his way to the centurion's house. And the centurion changed his mind and said, Jesus, you don't have to come after all because I'm not worthy to have you come to my house. In fact, you don't have to come to my house to heal my servant. Just say the word and he will be healed. And do you remember what Jesus said? He turned to the people that were following him because he was on his way to the centurion's house and there was a, a group of people following Jesus and he turned to them and said, never in all of Israel have I seen such faith. And what did Jesus do? He healed that servant. Didn't even go to the house. In fact, didn't even say, be healed. Didn't even make reference to the servant just commented about the centurion's faith and how unnatural it was that even in Israel nobody believed the Lord like this Roman centurion. And so Jesus just decided to heal that servant. Didn't say a word, 
didn't raise his arms, just made up his mind that that servant was going to be healed. And he was. And so it was after that that we reach verse 11. Luke writes, soon afterwards, soon after Jesus healed that centurion's servant, he, that is Jesus, went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Probably a lot of those same folks that were going with Jesus to the centurion's house were now following him to a town called Nain. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Now, you got to picture the scene. Jesus is leaving from where he was at the centurion's vicinity, which was in the town of Capernaum, and he's making his way to a town called Nain with his 12 disciples and a crowd behind him. And as he's nearing the gate of the city, there's another crowd that's leaving the city. And they are carrying somebody who has died. In fact, they most likely are on their way to the cemetery outside of the town to bury this man. And so you've got a funeral procession that's leaving the city. You've got Jesus and his entourage that's coming into the city, and they bump into each other. And then Luke tells us in verse 13, when the Lord saw the woman, she must have been next to the pallbearers who were carrying the dead man, her son. Luke says that when Jesus saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and he touched the beer. That is the wooden stretcher that the body was on. Probably wasn't even in a casket. This, this young man was just laying on a, a wooden stretcher with pallbearers. Jesus came up and touched the beers and the bearers stood still. And Jesus said, young man, I say to you, arise. So Jesus and the crowd bump into each other. Jesus sees the woman, tells her, do not weep. He puts his hand on the beer and talks to the corpse. Jesus is talking to a dead man and says, I say to you, arise. What happens next? The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. Amen, he most certainly has. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, had stepped into space and time, visited his people, spoke to a dead man, and caused him to rise up. And this report about Jesus spread through the whole of Judea and all of the surrounding country. That sets the stage for what we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at this morning, which is verses 18 to 23. These two miracles provide the context for everything that happens next. So let's look closely at verses 18 to 23. The disciples of John, that is John the Baptist, they reported all these things to him, 
And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, that is Jesus, when John's messengers came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The two miracles that took place prior to this, the healing of the centurion's servant and the raising of the dead man, undoubtedly were witnessed by hundreds of people, if not thousands, because there were crowds of people around. And among the crowd were the disciples of John the Baptist. And Luke tells us in verse 18 that the disciples of John reported all of these things to John. After seeing Jesus heal and raise the dead, John's disciples made haste to go tell John what was going on, what Jesus was doing. Now here Luke doesn't tell us where John was. But he does back in chapter 3. In, John, in Luke chapter 3, we find that John is in prison. He had been imprisoned by Herod because of what John said about him and about his wife. See, John confronted Herod about Herodias, who was at one point his brother's wife. And Luke says all the evil that he had done. Now, scholars and historians tell us that Herod, also known as Antipas, not Herod the Great, that was his father. Herod the Great was the one who tried to kill the baby Jesus, if you remember from Matthew chapter 2. Killed all the, the young boys that were two years old and younger to try to kill Jesus. That was Herod the Great. That was Herod Antipas's daddy. So this Herod, we can call him Junior. He met his wife Herodotus while he was in Rome. Undoubtedly, Junior was going to Rome to have a face-to-face with Caesar who had made him governor over Galilee. And so while he is in Rome, he meets Herodotus. Who knows why she was there? But she was there and Herod seduces her while she is married to his brother, Philip. And so Herod goes after his brother's wife. His wife then divorces Philip, and Herodotus marries Herod. Now, if that isn't bad enough, we find in history that Herodotus' dad, 
was a man named Aristobulus. And Aristobulus and Junior were half-brothers. And so that makes Herodotus Herod's niece. Junior marries his niece. So he is a wife-stealing, incestuous man. You've got an ancient Hollywood soap opera taking place right there in Rome and in Israel. And John the Baptist knows all about it. And so he confronts Herod, no doubt telling Herod to repent. And that ended up causing John the Baptist to be thrown into prison. And so that's where John was when his disciples went to report all these things to him that Jesus was doing. That's an important detail. We need to keep that in mind. John is in prison. And so after his disciples see and hear Jesus raise the dead and heal the man from a distance, they tell John, John hears the message and he calls two of his boys to him. We don't know how many went, but he calls two of them, Luke says. Called two of his disciples to him and sent them back to the Lord saying, ask Jesus this. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? That's John the Baptist answering that question. John is asking, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now that is a strange question. Not because the question itself is strange, but because of who it's coming from. If there is anyone who knew that John, that Jesus was the one who was to come, it would have been John. Amen? John knew who Jesus was while they were both still in their mother's womb. John knew who Jesus was before he was even born. Right? You remember the story from Luke chapter 1. Elizabeth, John's mother, is pregnant. Her cousin Mary had just gotten pregnant. And so Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. Elizabeth is about six months along, and and here comes Mary by surprise. And when Elizabeth hears Mary's voice, what does John do inside her stomach? He jumps for joy. John knew who Jesus was at the sound of his mother's voice. Not only that... After John was born, you know who John's father was? Zacharias. Zacharias was a priest. And Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied about his son. And he said, you child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. To give his people the knowledge of salvation By the forgiveness of sins. And you can be absolutely certain that John's parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth, would have told John these stories all through his childhood. Elizabeth would have told him about how he leaped in her womb when when he heard that Jesus was in his presence. 
Zacharias would have told him stories about how he was visited by an angel and that in their old age, mama and daddy were going to have a child and that was you and you were going to tell the people of God that the Messiah has come. And most certainly, Zacharias would have groomed his son for the ministry. As a priest, he would have known the prophecies about the Messiah. And so he would have told John as a young boy, and even when, until he started his own ministry, that the Messiah would redeem his people. That when the Messiah comes, he would save them from their enemies. And that when the Messiah comes, he would fulfill the covenant that God made with their ancestors and their father Abraham. John would have heard all these things growing up and more. And then finally, when John began to carry out his ministry, we know that what his ministry was. He was a preacher. And he was baptizing people in the Jordan. And people wanted to know who John was. Some thought that he was the Messiah, right? And so the Pharisees sent a group of people to John to ask him, who are you? Let us know so that we can give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself, John? And John said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as Isaiah the prophet has said. John responds to these people that want to know who he was by quoting Isaiah. That's a key detail. Keep that in mind. And as they asked him, they said, well then, why are you baptizing if you're not the Christ? If you're not Elijah? If you're not the prophet that Moses spoke about? John answered them saying, I baptize in water. But among you stands one whom you do not know. And it is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. Behold, the Lamb of God. When John saw Jesus coming, that's exactly what he said. The next day, Jesus shows up and John says, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who is a higher rank than I because he existed before me. John knew that Jesus was God. Because John was older than Jesus by six months. But still, chronologically, John was older. But he says, he existed before me. Did John know who Jesus was? Absolutely. But then after he said that, you know what happens next. He sees Jesus coming, and then Jesus goes up to John and requests that John baptize him. And what did John say? Me baptize you? you got to be kidding me, Jesus. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, permit it to be so that we might fulfill all righteousness. And so John relents. He baptizes Jesus. Immediately when Jesus comes up out of the water, what happens? The Spirit of God descends upon Jesus like a dove, and the Father speaks. This is my beloved in who I am. 
John heard the voice of the Father. He's seen the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus. Why is that important? Because John knew beyond the shadow of a doubt who Jesus was. He knew Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. He knew that Jesus was the one who is to come. And so why then is John asking the question? It wasn't because John was confused about the identity of Jesus. The reason John is asking the question is because he was confused about Jesus' mission. He knew who Jesus was, and he thought he knew what Jesus was supposed to do. You see, John wasn't doubting that Christ was the Messiah. He knew with absolute certainty that he was. What baffled John was the fulfillment of Jesus' mission. And it was John's circumstances that caused him to be perplexed, confused, and disheartened. Where was John? He was in prison. See, John didn't ask the question when he was in the womb. He didn't, he didn't, didn't say, should I jump? Is, 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 that, is that really Jesus? He didn't ask the question when he was in the womb. He didn't ask the question when he saw Jesus coming to be baptized. He asked the question when he was in prison. He knew Christ was the Messiah. And he knew what the scriptures taught about the Messiah. What was the Messiah supposed to do when he showed up? He was supposed to set the prisoners free. According to Isaiah 61.1, John the Baptist's favorite book, Isaiah says the Messiah was going to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Why then was Jesus not opening the prison for John? Why was John still being held captive? I'm sure those are questions that were going in John's mind, which is why he's asking the question, And he would have remembered what his daddy, Zacharias, told him about the Messiah. He's in prison. He's got plenty of time to think. And so all of these thoughts must be flooding his mind. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to save his people from their enemies. He's going to deliver his people from the hand of all those that hate us. And then while he's in prison, his disciples come and say, John. There was this Roman centurion who had a servant that was sick, and he asked Jesus to come heal him, and Jesus healed him from a distance. And John is saying, a what? A Roman centurion? Those are the enemy. The Romans are holding our people captive. What is Jesus doing? Responding to the enemy, helping a Roman. He's not behaving like he's supposed to. You know, that's what got Jesus in trouble with the religious establishment. 
And that's what made John's head spin. Jesus is acting out of character. You see, John was feeling a lot like my, my pastor friend, the Korean pastor, Pastor Paul. He couldn't think straight after losing his mom. And John's imprisonment caused him to think in ways that were out of character for a prophet of God. He became troubled. He became unsettled. He became confused. And he couldn't make heads or tails out of Jesus, who was the Messiah, but wasn't acting like the Messiah. Trials will do that. Hardships will do that. When life gets difficult, our faith gets tested, and we begin asking questions and acting in ways that are uncharacteristic. We ask questions that we know the answers to, because all of a sudden we're unsure. It was John's imprisonment and Jesus' uncharacteristic behavior that makes him wonder if maybe we should be looking for somebody else. Is there another Messiah coming? Verse 20 tells us that that's the message that John sent his disciples back to ask Jesus. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Jesus, I thought you were the one, but now I'm not sure. Are you the forerunner of the Messiah? Is there somebody else coming? He knows the answer to that question, but he's distraught, he's confused, and he's troubled. And notice how Jesus responds to the question. Look at verse 21. John's disciples asked Jesus a direct question. Are you the one or shall we look for somebody else? And Luke says, in that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. You notice that Jesus didn't answer the question right away. Instead, Jesus continues to heal the people that he was with before they showed up. I mean, you can, you can imagine it, right? Jesus is with some people. He's, he's doing ministry. He's, he's healing. He's teaching. And then out of left field, here come these disciples of John. Ask Jesus this question, are you the one or should we be looking for another? Isn't that interesting? Why doesn't Jesus answer them right away? He doesn't. Instead, it's as if he says, okay, boys, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I'll answer it in just a minute. Let me continue to do what I started before you interrupted me. Continues to heal, give sight to the blind. Why is that? Because Jesus is a man of compassion. Because he came to heal. That was his mission, right? We'll see that very clearly in just a minute. Jesus is compassionate to the people he was with before he was interrupted. But he does that for another reason, I believe. And it's to provide more evidence for both John, who sent his disciples to ask the question, and John's disciples who are relaying the message. Jesus performs these miracles to give them more evidence 
about his true identity. See, because by this time, you can be sure that John's disciples were starting to doubt as well, right? If their teacher, John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, is asking this question, and he's telling his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one? What are they thinking as they leave prison and go to ask Jesus the question? Is he? Maybe not. I mean, that would be like Pastor Jamie asking the question, is Jesus really the Son of God? If he stood up here and preached the message and said, you know what, I'm starting to have my doubts. And if he did that long enough, what would happen to you guys? You would start to wonder. Probably, Pastor Jamie, are you sure you don't know? Well, if you don't know, how am I supposed to know? And so John's disciples were probably thinking that very same thing. And so for the sake of John the Baptist, as well as for John's disciples, Jesus delays his answer so that he can demonstrate his power by giving further proof and evidence that he is the one who is to come and there is no other. And it's only after Jesus performs several more miracles that he finally answers the question in verse 22. Listen to Jesus' answer. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. What you have just seen me do and what you have heard me say. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Isn't it very interesting that what Jesus says is a quote from Isaiah, just like John quoted from Isaiah when he was questioned by the Pharisees. Who are you, John? I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Jesus gives his answer by quoting from Isaiah. Rather than a simple yes, yes I am, no you don't have to look for somebody else, Jesus identifies himself by quoting the prophet that John recognizes as authoritative. See, John knows Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah. He could probably recite the whole book of Isaiah. He knows Isaiah is the word of God, and he knows the word of God is the final authority. And so rather than simply say, go tell John, yes, I am the one who is to come, Jesus tells John's disciples to report back and to bear witness of him concerning all that they've heard Jesus say, and all that they've seen Jesus do. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the gospel is preached to the poor, which we know is the power of God unto salvation. Jesus preached to the poor when other people wanted to kick the poor to the curb. Jesus was a man of compassion. In, in answering this way, by quoting Isaiah, what was Jesus doing? 
He was speaking John's love language. He was speaking in such a way that John was sure to understand and sure to be encouraged. He answered by quoting the authoritative word of God. Jesus answered in a way that is the most descriptive and the most definitive way that John would not discount. John would not question. John would know that, yes, Jesus is the one, and we don't need to look anywhere else. Jesus knew that John knew who he was. And Jesus knew that John simply needed to be reminded of who he was and what the truth of God said. Which is why John doesn't receive a tongue lashing from Jesus. Jesus doesn't send the disciples back to say to John, John, what kind of a question is that? You know who I am. You've seen me. You baptized me. You've, you've heard my father speak and you've seen the spirit come down. What kind of question is that? That's not how Jesus answered. Jesus answers him kindly and gently, just like he does us. Does he not? Jesus is patient. He's kind. But then he follows his answer with a very peculiar statement. Look at verse 23. Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's a head-scratcher. Why would John be offended by Jesus? The Pharisees would be, but not John. It's safe to assume that John was not offended, but Jesus said, don't be. And it wasn't the answer that was offensive. That's not what Jesus was saying. He didn't say... Blessed is the one who is not offended by my teaching or what what I have said. Instead, he says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And to understand what Jesus was getting at, we need to look at the word offended. Because different Bibles translate that word differently. Anybody out there have the New American Standard? You got it? The new, the new American, what's it say? Tell me what it says, David. Oh, you don't got to look it up. I'll tell you what it says. The new American standard says, blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. And then the updated version in 1995 says, blessed is the one who does not take offense at me. And then if you have the new international version, it says, blessed is the one who does not stumble on my account. If you have the New Living Translation, it said, God blesses those who do not turn away from me. But if you have the old version of the NIV before it was updated, the NIV says, blessed is he who does not fall away on account of me. Now question, why so many differences? Why so many different translations of this one word? The answer is because all of those translations are legitimate. The word for offended can be translated in all of those different ways depending on the context. Take offense, stumble, turn away, or fall away, which I believe is the most helpful translation. 
It's not used in the ESV, and that's the one that we teach from at our church, but in this instance, I prefer the NIV. And let me tell you why. It's because Luke and Matthew both use this same word translated offended here in other places in their gospels, and it's translated fall away, not, of, not offended. In Luke chapter 8, you remember the parable of the soils. Jesus explains the parable of the soils in verses 11 through 13. And Jesus says this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe. The ones on the rock are those when they hear the word receive it with joy but they have no root. They believe for a while and in a time of testing, fall away. Same word. And in Matthew 24, Jesus is explaining the end time events. And in verses 7 through 10, Jesus says, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. In various places there will be famines and earthquakes. These are just the beginnings. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death. You will be handed, hated by all the nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another. In both of these examples, we see people falling away because of hardship, trials, and difficulties. They fall away from following Christ. They fall away from trusting God. And that's the same word translated offended in verse 27. And so, again, remember we said John wasn't confused about Jesus' identity. He was confused about the mission of Jesus. And that's turning out to be a time of testing for John while he's incarcerated. And so for that reason, what Jesus is saying to John is what he is saying to every one of us. He's saying, yes, I am the one, John. I'm the one that you've been expecting. I am the Christ, and I've proven that to you by quoting from Isaiah. I'm fulfilling Isaiah's prophecies. You've heard it, and you've heard my father. And yes, John, all of this is true. I know where you are, John. I know that you're in prison. You've been in prison wrongly, and I'm going to leave you there, John. I'm going to leave you right where you are. And even though I do nothing to change your circumstances, John, you will be blessed. You will be blessed if you do not fall away in your faith. You will be blessed if you are not offended by the scriptures, if you do not turn away from the truth. You will be blessed if you do not stumble over what you think I should do. You will be blessed if you do not turn away by what I don't do. John, you will be blessed. Don't be offended like those whom I said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. They fell away because they were offended at my teaching. John, don't be offended. Don't fall away because of me. See, Jesus said that because John had expectations of Jesus. John expected Jesus to set him free. That's what the Messiah was supposed to do. John expected Jesus to save Israel and to come to everyone's rescue, especially him. Because if anybody deserved to be rescued, it was John. John was kinfolk. John was Jesus' cousin, humanly speaking, right? John had expectations. Jesus, come on now, it's me, the forerunner, 
the voice crying in the wilderness, I'm making straight the way for you. I'm telling people to repent. I'm getting them ready. I think about John asking himself those questions, making these statements in his mind. I'm, I'm reminded of Habakkuk. We don't think much about Habakkuk, but Habakkuk said something similar. In chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Habakkuk says, How long, O Lord, shall I cry for help and you not hear? Or cry violence and you not save? You see, John was no different from Habakkuk, and John is no different from all of us. John was troubled by what he thought Jesus should do for him. And he was troubled by what Jesus was not doing for him. But in answering John's question, Jesus says, John, you know the truth about me. The word identifies me and my deeds confirm who I am. Don't fall away, John. Don't stumble over me. Stay connected to me regardless of your present circumstances, God, uh, John. Stay connected regardless of what you see me do regardless of what you see me not do. Don't fall away, John. You will be blessed if you abide in me. You will be blessed even though I don't fulfill all of your expectations. Even though I'm not acting like you think the Messiah should, and even though I don't do what you think I should, John, don't fall away. And when Jesus gave that answer to John, he wasn't just speaking to John. He was speaking to everybody else who would read that word and hear that answer. He says, blessed is the one who does not fall away. He's not just talking to John. He's talking to everybody else from the time of John till he comes back. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's a universal answer. That's an answer to you. That's an answer to me. Jesus doesn't always meet our expectations. Even now, many of you are going through difficulties. Pastor Jamie is is going through it. I can't imagine what he is experiencing. But some of you are going through it as well and have gone through it. Unexpected deaths, financial upheaval, sudden job loss. I mean, you name it. The world throws it at us. We are under a weight. And so we wonder sometimes why the Lord doesn't do something. Jesus, why are you just letting me sit here? Don't you hear me crying out to you? Why am I languishing in this place? It's at that point that we need to remind ourselves of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. He is the one who is to come, and there is no other. He and only He paid for our ransom. He and only He has reconciled us to the Father. He and only He has delivered us from the wrath to come by laying down His life and rising from the dead. Jesus is the Messiah. And as a result, we do have a hope and a future. As a result, we do have peace with God. We have been forgiven of all of our wrongs. And we know with 100% certainty, like I shared with Pastor Paul, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So then, brothers and sisters, let us take heart. 
to what Jesus said to John, blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. Because you know the truth. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Amen? Believe it, church. Hold on to it. Hold on to Jesus, even when he doesn't fulfill your expectations. Let's pray.